I'm Lee Crevat, and each week I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Jorge Elizondo. He's an engineer at Halo Technologies, and he leads the technical vision of enabling the grid of tomorrow with renewable-based microgrids. The Halo software platform was able to power Stone Edge Farm, a vineyard in Sonoma, California, during the devastating fires in 2017. Halo's vision is to enable the grid of tomorrow by dramatically simplifying the construction, operation, and optimization of fleets of distributed energy resources, DERs. The Halo platform makes it possible for any DER manufacturer to participate in an organic microgrid revolution. Halo has already incorporated dozens of devices into its existing ready-to-integrate library from manufacturers large and small. They interconnect solar arrays, batteries, fuel cells, and any other distributed energy resource to the grid. Jorge sees a distributed energy future where every node is part of the distributed energy system. Every battery, solar array, inverter, fuel cell, whatever. Each asset becomes an independent, intelligent agent that can socialize, hypothesize, and self-organize, enabling communities and developers to grow microgrids organically from the ground up as assets are added or removed. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat. I'm with Jorge Elizondo. He's the microgrid engineer at Halo Technologies, and he leads the technical vision for the company and also is one of the leaders, really, in developing microgrids. Jorge, welcome to the Climate Champions. Thank you, Lee. Very glad to be here. It's exciting having you on the show. I remember when we met you were the first person that I ever talked to that already had a hundred percent renewable microgrid. It was super exciting. Yeah, no, that's right. That we were showing in that microgrid conference. I remember it was in Chicago in 2018. We're showing 100% renewable microgrid live in a screen right in the microgrid conference. So it was very exciting to be there and, and show that. And I remember that's when we met. We can keep in touch and very glad to be in your podcast. Yeah, I was there thinking that I had the only technology that can make a 100% renewable microgrid. <laughs> so I was a little nervous when I saw yours. We did it a different way, but you already had one. And that's, that was the difference. Very exciting. Very exciting. That's what I like to do. I, I, I like that there's many people that can make it happen because that's what we need, right? It's not going to be one single company solving this problem. It's going to be a collaboration, many different technologies competing to be the best. I think that's very important. I 100% agree. I'm not with that company anymore, so I say go for it all the way. <laughs> Even then, I was very excited for you because I think it's something the world needs. Exactly. exactly. Can you talk about your motivating moment with regards to climate change mitigation when you felt that you wanted to get involved and do something to help the planet? I've been working in technologies for renewables for many years. And, you know, it's hard to pinpoint the exact moments when I became interested because one of the problems with climate change is that it's so slow that 
it's hard to, it's not just one moment that, that happens. I mean, there's some catastrophes like hurricanes or, or fires in California that are related to climate change. But, you know, there's many factors involved. So it's hard to pinpoint the exact moment. But I do remember when I was finishing college, I saw data, right, from how much emissions we were sending to the atmosphere. Not only emissions, how much extra emissions uh, we're sending. Because there's a natural cycle for CO2, but we were sending more. We were just burning fuels that were that captured that CO2 many years ago. So when I saw that, I was like, well, this doesn't sound sustainable. We're taking things that capture CO2 many, many million years ago, and now we're releasing that. That cannot be sustainable. That's breaking a cycle, and that's not good. <laughs> so I started reading more. I started understanding more. And I, I got into the mindset that this is a big problem, and we, we need to fix it. Well, I'm glad you got involved in it. Can you talk about why it's personal to you? It's the most important threat to our way of life, if not humanity itself. So for me, it's, it's important to be involved in something that could be very catastrophic. So preventing that, not for myself, but for, for everyone. I also find it interesting in the sense that it can be solved with technology. It, it requires a lot of things, not only technology, it requires behavior changes very likely. Policy is a big factor in this, but technology can lead the way. So working on an important problem that impacts me, my family, and everyone else that I know, even people that I don't know, and that can be solved by technology, that's what I like to build and innovate in. That was a perfect mix. When you meet people that don't believe climate change is a threat or don't understand the data, how do you convince them that it's something we should be working on? Yeah, it's a very good question because, as I mentioned before, climate change is happening slowly, right? We're releasing extra CO2 to the atmosphere slowly. But it's hard for some people to grasp it because people understand things that happen rapidly much better. But there are miniature examples of climate change that people are aware of. One example that I usually use, I've seen many people using it. I ask like, people that don't believe, like, have you, been, have you opened the door of a car that has been in the sun for several hours and then it's burning hot inside? Well, that's exactly what's happened to Earth. It's not that the air has a window <laughs> on top, but CO2 is acting as a window. It's been proven that it's a greenhouse gas. So the window is, is causing that effect of just trapping like this energy from the sun coming in and it cannot go out. So the car gets hot. That's what's happening on Earth. And people kind of understand because they have seen it. And then I, I go and say, well, facts that can be stated without doubt. One is that we're receiving energy from the sun. Two is that CO2 is, is a greenhouse gas. And three is that by burning fossil fuel, we're emitting CO2. So those are things that are not debatable, right? Some people say, well, the amount of CO2 is not that big, the, the amount of CO2 that we release. But I say that doesn't matter. We're just emitting extra CO2. So even if it's a small effect, there's going to be an effect. So it's something that has to stop, in my opinion, or, or at least controlled. So that's kind of like the, the analogies I usually use. But it's an important topic. How do we convey the message correctly? As engineers, as scientists, conveying the message to the general public is key. The solar energy can enter the window because it's visible light mostly. I mean, it has all the wavelengths, but it's mostly visible light. It heats up things inside, and then the heat is infrared light, or at least not as sufficiently exit the windows. So it's trapped. And it's exactly the same thing that happens to the atmosphere, right? So the atmosphere let the visible light get in, heats the earth, and then that's infrared light that cannot leave because it's trapped by the CO2 that doesn't allow the infrared to leave. That's kind of like a more technical description of the same phenomenon, right? Which is just greenhouse effect. That is a simple way to discuss it because a lot of people are confused as to 
well, why does it let the heat in but not out? And, and the idea that it's letting light in and the light is converted to heat and then it doesn't let heat out, that's an important way to talk about it so that people can understand it. Yeah, and you know, people that are more trained will know that heat is several things, but it's also light, it's radiation, right? One of the ways that heat transfer is by radiation, but it's a different wavelength. So you can see that windows that we use in cars are transparent for visible light, that's what we can see through them. But they are not transparent for infrared light or radiation from heat. They are actually opaque, right? So they, they block the light. <laughs> so they keep the light, the heat that is coming from radiation inside. So that's one of the, of the problems. That's why it heats up. That, I mean, and you can see it. You just leave your car in the sun for several hours and then go, go back and it will be way hotter than the outside. How is the pandemic affecting the way that you think about climate change and your role? We haven't lost focus, and I'm talking for me and, and my team. Of course, it's got changed our life in the sense that we travel less. Now all of our meetings are virtual. <laughs> and I know it's changed your life because this, this interview used to be virtual, right? Yes. So it has, <laughs> has an impact. But at the same time, uh, we don't lose focus. But that's easy for us to say because our work depends on, <laughs> on renewables, right? So we work on renewables. So it's easier for us to keep focus even in the midst of a pandemic. But that's, that's an important aspect. Like we are still very focused. We haven't distracted ourselves with other things. Uh, we want to solve this problem. I know a lot of companies diverted from what they were doing into working with something related to COVID, but that's for, because it's very immediate, right? And now we don't have the capability to do that, but we keep working on solving this issue, which is arguably in the long term way more impactful. Climate change can really, really cause much more serious problems affecting food production chains, which COVID is not doing, at least not very seriously. But climate change could disrupt that, and that could be chaos. Same with water, same with things that we need to survive. So it's not going to be only a shelter in place that you cannot travel or you cannot meet people directly, but it, it can actually affect, you know, our survival. You know, we have to keep focus. I agree. It's, it's difficult to keep focus, but we have to. Agreed. Can you talk about what Hela does and what you do for Hela? Hela started in 2015. I was have been with the company since the beginning. as kind of like the technology expert, the subject matter expert. The guru. Yeah. <laughs> when Hela started, I was doing my PhD at, at MIT in microgrids. So I spent five years in grad school working on how does microgrid work and what are microgrids and how can we make them better? So when Hela started and went to tackle that problem, I said, well, this is how the solution should look like. That's what Halo is working on right now. It is a way to better build microgrids, I believe, in which you can grow them organically. So it's changing the way that utility infrastructure works from the bottom up, meaning taking as the building block, not the power plants or transmission lines, but the distributed energy resources, meaning the batteries and the solar panels that are put in houses and in commercial buildings and everywhere in the system. So we take those as the building blocks. We make them intelligent so that they can interact with others and start building a community of these resources. And then this community can, can grow over time and we believe in the future be the base of the power industry. The advantage of that is that it's mostly based in renewables. The source of energy there is solar and store it. And then you use it when you need. You cannot control the load. So some of the loads at least so you can balance generation and consumption better and reduce the amount of storage that you need. We have worked with many different types of storage. Some of them have advantages over others in certain 
cases, and not only with batteries, actually, we have done projects where we work with hydrogen for long-term storage. One of the problems that we see is that batteries are great and biotechnology has evolved a lot to produce energy during the day and use it at night or use it a few days later. Even a couple of weeks later, it's not a problem. But when you have solar in the summer, you want to move to the winter, then batteries don't work that well because, well, they self-discharge and also they are bigger than alternatives. So either you side your solar for the winter if you want to be fully autonomous or you find a way to move that solar energy from the summer to the winter. And we have used hydrogen in a project for, for that. It's a very interesting application. Less efficient than batteries, but that has this capability of doing long-term storage. So we deal with a lot of crazy things going towards sustainability. And our, our main role in there is just how do you manage these devices, right? We don't build the batteries, we don't build the hydrogen, but we manage them intelligently so you can achieve full sustainability. I'm very interested in the topic of storage, especially long-term storage, because of the exact issues that you talked about. A lot of the solutions we're looking at work well when there's a lot of sun and during the summer, but not as well in the winter and not as well when you have cloudy days. And so we really need to have a way other than banks and banks of lithium ion of storing that energy. And I think hydrogen is really a great way to do that, especially with the price of solar and wind falling so low, you could almost dedicate generation of solar and wind to creating hydrogen. As I said, we're a control company, so we don't, we don't care which technology is decided, but, but we have seen hydrogen as a long-term storage solution because you have, for example, in California, where our first microwave was installed, they have a lot of solar energy. And during the summer, it's uh, beautiful. You have extra energy. Sometimes we don't know where to put it. Right. So either we send it to the grid or, or we have to curtail it. And everything is powered by solar. It's beautiful. Then we go into the fall. You know, we can still survive with solar. It's not so much extra energy anymore. And then we get to the winter. People from, from Northern California will know that it rains a lot in the, in the winter months. Not only do you have less solar energy because there are shorter days and the, the solar is lower in the horizon, but you also have a lot of rain and cloudy days. So the solar production in that project reduces by by 50% or more. On the solar I have on my roof, it's about a 50% drop from the best day in the summer to the worst day in the winter, or, or a, a clear day even, even a clear day. A clear day in the winter, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then if you average over the winter and average over the summer, now it depends on how the panels are installed, other effects like partial shading from trees. Uh, there's a lot of factors, but you know, it's not uncommon to have big drops in solar production in the winter. You know, we have a lot of batteries in that project, but no battery maintained its charge through the winter, right? We charge them during the day, discharge them at night, and then the next day we charge. But in the winter, we, have, we need an extra source of energy. For some time, that project uses gas, natural gas, but that doesn't solve the problem, right? That <laughs> goes into the same problem as, as before, where you have emissions. So if you want to get rid of emissions, we can add a lot of batteries, a lot of lithium-ion batteries, and uh, that we charge during the summer, and discharge at winter and keep them disconnected while their charges turn them off. So they can hold the charge, they will self-discharge, but they'll hold some of it. So you can do that, but the, the volumes that you need are massive. It was not possible to do in, in that project. The other one is that you can just size your solar for winter. You add a lot of solar panels, but you have to double, sometimes triple your solar capacity to be able to survive it in the winter. And then you will have this massive solar for the summer that you'll have to curtail. So not really practical. And the third one was hydrogen. And in that project, that's what was implemented. Just produce hydrogen. And people criticize hydrogen for being inefficient. And it is right now less efficient than batteries, round trip efficiency. 
not even close. But the advantage is that this extra energy that you have there in the summer. So this is free energy in a sense. And then in the winter, you convert it back to electricity to fuel cells. And storing that hydrogen in tanks doesn't leak very much compared to batteries. So batteries self-discharge more than the leakage that we see in tanks. The energy density of hydrogen is very high by, by kilogram. And then if you compress it, you can put a lot of kilograms in small volumes. So it was a very interesting solution that we are implementing right now, and it works well. The other interesting thing about hydrogen is that theoretically, if you go to the thermodynamics of it, is that it's not very inefficient for the physics, right? They can become very efficient. So it's an engineering problem. And there's people working on better electrolyzers to produce hydrogen and better fuel cells to convert back to electricity. So I believe if people focus on this, they can get to the same point as batteries. You know, if you run the thermodynamic analysis, the thermodynamic balance, fuel cells and electrolyzers can be in the 90s percent of efficiency. There's no limit to that. It's just an engineering challenge. If I had to pick one technology scheme that was going to get us into the future to get us close to zero carbon emissions from energy generation, I think it is likely to be a double solar scenario like you were talking about, where we put in massive amounts of solar and, and the extra energy created, we make hydrogen with, even some dedicated. And then in the winter, because we have so much solar, we can get through the winter with that solar and then the hydrogen for cloudy days and hydrogen for at night. I think that's the most likely solution. I'm not 100%, of course. If I had to pick one, that's where it is, but I'm hoping technology finds an even better way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think it's a, it's a very nice architecture is something that we are attempting in, in one of our projects. And it was a customer decision, but you just make it work, right? We made it work so that it integrates nicely into the control system and it's managed correctly. But we send the extra energy and then we balance with the batteries. So it's an interesting solution for sure. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you implement a microgrid with pricing schemes? Yeah. So the way we control the system is in a distributed way. And this applies for microgrids or for aggregated systems of DR. We have projects where batteries in houses are aggregated together to form a system. Instead of having individual batteries per house, we aggregate everything together and we do it in a distributed way. Now this goes along with the line that I mentioned yesterday where the building block that we see for the power system and microgrids, microgrids but power system in general is a distributed energy resource. So we want to make them agents that then can interact with each other and achieve goals together. That's how society and humans <laughs> work, right? So by removing the layer of authority that tells everybody what to do, and instead of that, you have them being independent agents, the architecture is much more scalable and much more modular. Every single agent makes its own decision. Now, to manage the decision-making at the agent level, we use a pricing scheme based in game theory, where distributed energy resources make decisions for themselves based on what's most economical to them. But this is an economics internal to the microgrid. But that's also how people work. That's why it's based on game theory, which game theory applies to rational decision-making elements, including people. Now, in, in a distributed energy resource with our control technique, we can make them fully rational <laughs> while people have emotions and all those kind of things that, that affect decisions. In this case, it's purely technical. So we can achieve a very good stability and we can achieve very good optimality by doing this correctly. Can you talk about your journey to get where you are today? So, you know, I'm a physicist by training. My college years were in physics. It's, it's one of my favorite topics, even right now. 
And then I turned into an engineer and I enjoy it very much. <laughs> I think a friend of mine once told me something that, that resonated with me very well. That was, I like physics a lot and I like to keep myself informed of what's going on in the world of physics. So I, I read a lot about that. But I wanted to dedicate my life to something that had more immediate impact. So I, I went to engineering and climate change. Even though it's not the most immediate impact, it's also certainly very important and something that we have to figure out within our lifetime. So that was a very easy change for me to do. But as I say, I'm mainly a, a physicist. So I have a very technical background, mathematics and physics, which made it a, an easy jump into more engineering. I grew up in Mexico and did my undergrad in Mexico and then moved to MIT for grad school to Boston. But it was not trivial getting to MIT and, and doing a different degree because I was doing electrical engineering when my undergrad was in physics. So I took some ramping up, but I was able to catch up and then learn all the engineering <laughs> tricks and techniques. That was my process in MIT. I focused mostly on smart grid. I have to say before MIT, I was working on renewables also back in Mexico. After college, I started a company in Mexico doing smart wind turbines and installing them in many different places. We sold quite a lot of them. And we designed them and manufactured them. So that was kind of like my first engineering experience after college. And it was a lot of fun. Small wind turbines are a very tough <laughs> market, but you have to compete with solar panels. Solar panels are becoming very, very cheap, very easy to install, and then maintenance is almost zero. You have to clean them, you have to keep an eye on them, but it's almost zero maintenance. Well, small wind turbines, you know, you can compete with in cost if you have a very windy area. <laughs> but if you have a very windy area, maintenance goes up to the roof. So it was very hard to compete. Then uh, I moved to MIT and focused more on the smart grid and control. One of my guests a couple of weeks ago has a company called Chava Wind, and they have small wind turbines. Vertical access. Yes, vertical access, exactly. Vertical access has many advantages. And I know a lot about this topic. I <laughs> spent two years of my life designing small wind turbines for fun and, you know, as a business. I'm going to introduce the two of you. For sure. Anytime. I like uh, small wind turbines a lot, but I see the challenges. <laughs> He just recently was certified, I believe. It would be great to see their technology and maybe use it in some projects. Oh, yeah, yeah. You could use it in the microgrid. That would be awesome. Can you talk about setbacks you've had along the way? Well, I think that actually ties well with the story I was just telling about a small wind turbine company. That was a setback only. I, I think we see challenges all the time. That's kind of like the nature of innovating. You see things that don't work as you expected, and then you have to find a different way. When you're trying to go into the market with a new product, you get setbacks all the time. A lot of people say no, they prefer going with someone else, or that's very common. But definitely working in small wind turbines for two years and then having to make the decision that it's not the right way to go. I take it as a setback, although I do think I learned a lot in that period. And looking back, it's very easy to say that it was easy to predict that solar panels were becoming very cheap, right? And it was going to be hard to compete. But it was a, a very good lesson from the point of view of industry and also technical. So I learned a lot. That was my introduction to engineering. And then that's what I'm doing right now. So even though it was a setback that it didn't work out as we expected, we, we learned a lot and, and we use that to, to go to the next level. Very nice. Can you talk about the success or successes you're most proud of? Yeah, I think being involved in, in the creation of a company, Hala, that is building technology to innovate in climate change. For, for me to, to be able to lead the, the vision on how to do things. It started with a couple of people and then I, I joined and now we're 15 people and growing because we have projects, we have been able to deploy in real microgrids. It's very fulfilling for, for me to see a microgrid 
fully working as we expected and you know arguably better than what our competitors do or what is common in the industry we're a small company so we still have to convey your message correctly but what i've seen is that our approach is much better much more natural so being able to be in the forefront of that has been very fulfilling and i, I consider it a great success we haven't finished so i don't think that is over but at the same time the success is a process not so much of just getting somewhere I don't know if you ever get there, right? Because you always have more things to do and more things to improve. But I consider the process to be a great success. Although it was a difficult time, during the fires, my understanding is that your microgrid stayed up the entire time. That's correct. The first microgrid we did now, and I want to emphasize we have other microgrids, but this was the first microgrid we were able to hire to do. So it's, it has, has special value for us. It's in the fire area in California, Northern California. It's in Sonoma. That microgrid has been working since 2017, and in 2017, 18, 19, and well, is expecting it now this year in, in 2020, that area of the country gets devastated with, with fires, right? And the fires cause blackouts. In that microgrid, we were able to keep the lights on the last three years, no problem. Just go off the grid. The microgrid, we can manage it to go off the grid. We can transition from grid connected to off the grid seamlessly. We have demonstrated that to many people. That's how we got other customers actually, <laughs> by showing one microgrid that works. And, and now I, I sometimes show that capabilities in front of audiences in conferences and things like that. It's so seamless that it works really well. But yeah, the microgrids kept the lights on for extended periods of time, even when outside was chaos, right? So that's one of the powers of microgrids. And we actually reach out to fire department and say, if you need water and you need someone with electricity, here's a resource. We had to keep communication with them because you have to be careful of keeping things energized without the fire department knowing because they might not expect that. So we kept open communications and we offered them as a resource if they needed. In the last year, the fires were not closed, but they were implementing the PSPS, public safety power shutdowns. So we actually used a microgrid for the community. So we have EV chargers, so people were going there to charge their car. That microgrid uses well water. I mean, it's, you cannot sustain the entire community, right? But some people were going there to get water because the surrounding areas also use well water. You don't have electricity, you don't have water. It's a big problem. It was kind of like community uh, resource, and I really like that. What is your vision for the future of California, the U.S., the world with regards to climate change? In my view, we'll tackle this problem. You know, humanity has faced other problems before. I remember when I was growing up, the ocean layer was a big topic of discussion. When I was in elementary school, Everybody was very worried about what's going to happen with the ocean layer. And if it goes away, what will happen to us, right? And we fix that problem. I think this is a more challenging problem because CO2 is ubiquitous in our life, right? And CO2 is not bad per se. Trees take it back and convert to organic material. So it's, it's part of our natural cycle. The problem is that we have too much <laughs> CO2. But I think we'll find a way to reduce the amount of CO2 that we emit. And eventually, it might be necessary to absorb back some of the CO2 that we emitted already and it's in the atmosphere. Right now we're in 410 parts per million of CO2 when just a few centuries ago we were at 300. Some of that CO2 might have to go back, but we have technologies for that. I think technology will lead the way and eventually will without this problem and focusing on other things that are not a threat, but an opportunity. And do you think the pandemic will help that mission to deal with the carbon in the atmosphere or do you think it's going to hurt it? What will the impact be? 
long term, I want to think that yes, for a couple of reasons. So one of the reasons is that people now might realize that we're vulnerable. If a virus is causing this problem, or society or, or infrastructure is vulnerable, right? And people staying at home and, and being so dependent on the stores staying open and uh, the electricity coming in. And if that stops, what will happen? I think that might make some people think that we have to be more careful in how we behave as society. You know, the second thing is that some people might realize that if we're suffering like this with a virus, climate change can really cause much more pain. With those two factors, I think people might, might see we're vulnerable and we have a much bigger threat here. So we have to be very, very extra careful. Now, the virus is much more immediate. So it's much easier to get everyone together when, when you have a threat that is right here, right now. And it's a very serious threat. Climate change is a much harder challenge because it's slow. And, you know, we have a lot of unconvinced people. Following the news, I think there's also unconvinced people with the virus, but that's much harder to be, right? Because you see it and you can see the impacts with maybe family members. You just have to believe what you see. Yes, exactly. And climate change is slower and more indirect impacts. So that makes it harder. But we'll have to get there. I'm certain that we will. Well, hopefully this shows that we have some ability to work together as a world and not only for ourselves, hopefully. Agreed. In my opinion, it's all about creating the right systems and the right processes. And, and that's how we control microgrid, by the way. <laughs> it's going to be very hard for someone to go and say, you have to do this and that. We have to incentivize the different agents. If we don't create the right incentives, it's going to be impossible right, to solve it. You can have authorities to tell people what to do, but that has many other problems <laughs> that we don't want. right? We want to create the right incentives, the right processes, give the people the right technologies so they can do it and that they prefer to do it. That's how I think this is going to be solved. And that's, and it has to happen globally, all around the world, which makes it even more challenging, but also more interesting because you have to go across cultures and you have to go across different socioeconomic levels. It makes it very difficult. But that's the only way to be able to achieve this, in my opinion. And that same principle is what we use in microgrids to control them and incentivizing instead of just ordering people to do things. Well, that's a nice analogy. Well done. Do you have any questions for me? I'd like to hear your answer on what is your vision. You interview a lot of people. So after interviewing these people, what do you think? I'm hopeful that the pandemic will, number one, teach people that we can work together across larger parts of the world. I wish we could do even more because I think we're going to need to. Also, I think it's a good sign that many governments, especially the U.S., were able to approve a lot of money to spend on solving the problem because they saw how important it was. Even if many people were not convinced, enough were that we were able to get some momentum towards spending money to solve the problem. So I'm hoping those two factors actually help because, like you said, now people see what the lack of an infrastructure to solve a problem can do. Maybe they will be more open to investing early, even though it's slow moving, to solve the problem. But I do think that no matter what, we're going to continue to have weather events that would not have happened as severe if we didn't have the climate changing. And I think those are going to get worse. And hopefully they won't get too bad before we start to make a real impact by removing some of the greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. I like that answer. And I agree with, with the point you said. Working together, it was shown that it can be done for an immediate threat. Now let's, let's prove that we can do it for a more longer term. I yeah. think it's, it's very doable. And I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up 
with a rap. When we first started talking, one of his admissions is that he got convinced because of data on emissions, the earth is something that we just can't bet because climate change is the most important threat. To convince others, Jorge will show how hot a car gets when you close the window. The coronavirus, look at all the damage it did Climate change will do more than COVID. You know, it is quite a bummer that solar makes half as much energy during the summer. The agents get distributed to each asset. That is nice. The architecture scales and it's based on price. A lesson that he would not rescind is the experience. He learned a lot from betting on small wind. He found that his purpose could be a little higher when he helped a lot of other people dealing with the North California fire. <laughs> the things he did, they sound kind of noble, but we all have to get there because this problem, it is global. He started out in physics and became an MIT kid, but then became an engineer studying microgrid. Wow. <laughs> Love it. I love Jorge's analogy of distributed energy resources within a microgrid being like people in a strong society. In a functional microgrid, each entity is acting in its own unique way. For example, based on how much energy it has that day. But it also has to understand the societal implications of its actions. Okay, I stretched the metaphor, but we do need rational decisions for both to work. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Jorge is passionate about leveraging game theory to enable the progressive installation of DERs, reducing upfront capital investment, the islanding of local power systems so communities are energized even when the grid goes down, and the value optimization of community energy production by working in concert with the grid to displace the carbon-emitting assets and to help mitigate climate change. <music>